0: Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Al.
1: And I'm Grizz. This week, we're talking about 1968 and the spirit of protest. What's left of it 50 years on.
0: And later, I will chat to the supremely funny and supremely dark Scottish comedian, Fern Brady. So
1: Al, how how are you?
0: I've been on holiday to Cornwall, which was lovely, apart from... Our boat nearly caught fire while we were in the middle of the sea and we had to be rescued.
1: Dramatic. Um,
0: it's very dramatic. I don't really recommend taking babies out on, on boats.
1: Oh, bear um, that in mind.
0: It's very exciting anyway. <laughs> um, and while I was away, I got sent almost an entire cow to the office by this company called Buy a Cow. And they give you updates about how your cow is doing like as it goes to the slaughterhouse and um, <laughs> then matures for 30 days. And, um,
1: so you're buying a dead cow?
0: Well, yes, and it was delivered, luckily dead, to the FT offices while I was away. I know, I was there. So I hope everyone enjoyed this delicious meat, because I didn't get any of it.
1: We all had a lot of meat in your absence. How have you been? I have been mostly avoiding the World Cup. Even though your team... My team, apparently Mexico, are doing quite well, have done quite well so far. Extremely
0: well. They thrashed Germany.
1: Well, what did I say? It's wonderful. <laughs> I mean, I did tell you in the last episode that they were going to win, so we'll just see well, on course. what happens. On course. When the football was on, I actually went to see a brilliant film, and pretty much no one else was in the cinema, which was nice. All about Roma gypsies in the south of Italy, thieving things and growing up very fast. And the cast was completely made up of non-professional actors. It's a absolutely brilliant film, which I can recommend to our listeners. Called Aciambra. If you if you would like to avoid the football, it's the perfect date.
0: Brilliant. Well I shall watch it, but at the moment I'm obsessed with the football, so have to wait.
2: The shooter has ceased shooting and will soon abandon his rifle. Blend in with the students as they escape and walk free.
0: This is America. Quickly the situation reverted to ugly street warfare, with
2: riot police giving no quarter and getting none in return. Okay, ladies, now let's get information. I slay. OK, ladies, now let's get information.
1: So this week we are talking about the anniversary of 1968, what it means today, why it still matters, because protest is back. Protests are everywhere now.
0: It does seem to be more like that. I mean, for the past of two decades, I would think. I mean, I've been on lots of protests, you know, since the Iraq War, really. Perhaps the atmosphere does feel a little bit more charged now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in the age of Black Lives Matter and the Women's March, Me Too, March for Our Lives, which was the recent gun control protest, all these things feel, with Trump as president and the rise of populism, these kind of marches feel more urgent.
0: Yes, I think they do. I'm, I'm looking back to 1968. I just wonder if it is the same spirit on what's changed about it. I think one of the obvious things that has changed is that a lot of the protest and debate now has moved from the streets to online. And perhaps the nature of some of the protests or the politics behind some of the protests has also shifted towards more of identity politics than perhaps the more traditional left-right.
1: Yeah, I guess there's a sense that the protests are not being led as they would traditionally have been by white male students that actually there's a the identity politics comes because there are different people leading these protests they have different agendas different perspectives on the world next month on the 13th of july there is a stop trump march coinciding with his visit to the uk Al, will you be going on that march
0: i certainly will yes i'll see you there our guest today is Eddie Heathcote, the FT's architecture critic. We're going to be talking to him about the significance of 1968 and protest and revolution in a sort of broader context.
1: And whether the way that we design our cities and our public spaces can change the kind of society that we live in.
0: Eddie, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. So 1968, we see protests in Grosvenor Square in London, in New York... Paris is more or less shut down by the students' rioting. Czechoslovakia is invaded by uh, the Soviet Union. This is a momentous year.
3: Absolutely. And, of course, it's the year I was born, so I have a kind of special interest. Doubly momentous. (laughs) Albeit I don't remember it that well. But the fascination, I think, with 68, the enduring fascination, lies in the cocktail of utopian protest of the students demanding their rights, kind of human rights, the freedoms, the, uh, the, the sexual freedoms, the political freedoms, the freedoms for gathering, for union representation and so on, with the onset of the reaction already in the year. So at the, at the same time as you have this utopian spirit and the kind of emergence of the hippies and uh, retreat into the wilderness, you also have the assassination of Martin Luther King, the Vietnam War you have the repression ultimately in Paris the repression in Czechoslovakia which is like the end moment of the optimism that started in 56 in in Budapest simultaneously these two things the explosion of utopian impulse and the onset of the reaction 50 years
0: on I think it's possible and probably wrong to look back at 1968 with a sense of romance is that right
3: I, I don't know it's always difficult when you look back at any year and you look at all the things that happened in that year it seems particularly momentous but there is something about 68 that do seem to make it an absolutely remarkable year and from a kind of an architectural point of view which is always my interest the explosion of interest in the way the city as a mechanism or as a way of reading society, the Parisian protesters who tore up the cobblestones and said beneath the pavement is the beach, this idea that actually we can take control of the city and read it in our own ways and transform it into a kind of personal paradise. I think it's an absolutely fascinating beginning, and that's very much a a 68 moment.
1: And we'll come on to this idea of the city and and how part of the protest was about reshaping the city and changing the way that we that we live in a city. But coming back to the idea of 68 as containing protest and kind of counter-protest, I think that's really interesting because today we have a similar thing. We have protest in the form of, for example, Me Too and the Women's March, but then something like the Brexit vote, that could be seen as a form of protest. It's not a kind of glamorous protest in the way that we see sort of young, beautiful students on barricades. There's a reactionary protest that's happening now, I think, at the same time.
3: That's right. There is still the impulse, not quite the revolutionary impulse that there was in, in 68, and the kind of idealism really severely dropped away. But I think probably now an increasing idea of the disenfranchisement of the citizens. In 68, there had been an explosion of the welfare state, of free education, and so on. And I think as those things are now rolling back, we do see a, a renewed discontent. But also, as you say, there are protests on the other side now. It's a lot more atomized. The utopian spirit has gone. The single issues have emerged, You know, whether it's Brexit or the, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter. They're, they're Clearly, they're, they're critical, fundamental and important issues, but they're aimed at changing one specific thing. That idea that we could change society that's pretty much collapsed. I guess the last time we saw that was the Occupy.
0: I think it's a sort of confusing moment for exactly the kinds of people who might have protested in 1968. Today, they find themselves as cast as as an elite establishment mm-hmm. and notions of, sort of liberal progress seem to be sort of under attack with sort of anti-immigration marches. Yeah. And in a way, the coin has flipped.
1: Yeah, I mean, protest is no longer the preserve of kind of left-wing students. People are protesting in different ways or using a vote to protest but these are expressions of discontent yeah like i mean say. a
0: trump rally is in some ways a protest isn't
1: it but it's exactly what eddie's saying it's not looking forward to going to a utopia it's kind of harking back to something that was better in the old days and we want to reclaim what we had rather than push forward to something new maybe i mean that's how i would see it
3: i think that's a very interesting point i think the the generation of 68 were too young to remember the Second World War and actually they got what they wanted broadly and they became the most successful and wealthiest generation in human history. There is a a sense now that that was the peak and there's, I think, a a disenchantment with that idea that progress that we've been fed is a a kind of uh, the panacea for all the ills is stopped, it's hitting reverse. And I think that's a a curious situation to be in. It's a difficult thing to, to protest about
1: one of the things though is that the sort of protests that we see about issues that we might characterize as identity politics these are very powerful and kind of pervasive I mean it's interesting that we see them in pop culture and in sport particularly you know the NFL players kneeling and refusing to sing the national anthem you know someone like Beyonce who sort of started off as a pop princess you know she's now very political and that's part of her brand and that's a it's okay to do that. She can do that and still be commercially very successful. Protest has kind of found its way into areas that I think maybe in the 80s and 90s weren't that politicised. You know, you didn't get Tiger Woods speaking out about what it's like to be an African-American athlete.
3: Well, I think protest itself has been commodified. You know, we see this with uh, Melania Trump's coat. I don't I forget the wording but it's something like I don't care to you or, you know and and uh, it's almost inconceivable that that you could wear <laughs> something like that in the midst of the of the children's um, camps mm. you know, the, the snatched children's camps in in America and I think that's what happened in a way fashion music the culture industry has commoditized protest so it's become another part of a culture which can be capitalized on
1: it can Whether still be real, though. Instagram you know, it can it, it, it can still be it can still be authentic. I mean, it can be commodified. Someone like Charles Gambino, Donald Glover, he can he can release a video that is meaningful and comes from a place of belief and has a big impact and be commercially successful. I mean, I don't think that something that has to be either one or the other. Maybe.
3: That's true. And I think obviously there was a naivety in the culture of 68, but that was part of its beauty. The idea that free love is, is wonderful because love is free. Time is free. Being a student, you have infinite resources. The world is yours and uh, education is free. And these kind of things are intangibles and they're, and they're there to be enjoyed. That maybe is something different now. Now there isn't that sense. Now there is a kind of a much smarter PR-driven attitude to political comment and culture. Is there any point in
0: protests? Um, I was on the anti-Iraq war one in Mm -hmm. about 2003. Mm -hmm. There were about a million people in Hyde Park. Harold Pinter was barking Mm. out that Tony Blair was Bush's poodle. It felt like no politician could take the country to war. And yet here we are.
3: I think in the midst of a protest, there is always the feeling that you're making a difference. When you look back on it, you realise you made no difference.
0: Are you a veteran protester but yourself?
3: I did used to protest. Yeah, I used to protest against uh, nuclear arms. I was on the poll tax protest, which was one that did have that did have an effect. So effectively, the poll tax protest brought an end to, to the Thatcher government. And I guess you can't know which protests are going to work in advance. So you have to protest because that might be the one that makes a difference. I mean, certainly the, the Black Lives Matter campaign, I think, has shone a light I don't know whether it's made a difference but it's shone a light on the inequalities in American society yeah the and gun, by pro- the gun protest that the, the teenagers were leading I think is an amazing protest actually from a, such a small group of people that's had an absolutely outsized effect
1: but it's interesting that technology in both those cases has had been really a driver I mean you know police brutality has existed for for decades but now we can record it, it can be recorded and we can see it and that has a huge impact and similarly with teenagers organising online, coming together in real life protests and online protests can sort of go hand in hand in those cases and be quite powerful.
3: Yeah, certainly the criticism of contemporary protest that it's just driven by kind of hashtag culture.
1: Kind of clicktivism.
3: It's easy, it's very easy to press a like or, or press a re- retweet or whatever it might be. But it is it is the contemporary cultural communication medium, you know, so, so inevitably that's where protests kind of migrate.
0: Do you think it's important to have an element of violence in protest?
3: Well, it's very interesting. I think the we know, we remember the, the 68 riots in Paris precisely because of the violence. So with the Parisian history of barricades, what the protesters were doing was using the fabric of the city, piling up the, the dustbins, the cobblestones, burnt out tires, piling them up, making barricades, and making a kind of city of protest from the fabric of a city that they say had been commodified, militarized, used against them. So, in a way, that was a constructive kind of violence. The problem, of course, is that the condemnation of violence allows the forces of order and the existing regime to gain the upper hand and say, well, this is a criminal act. And then, you know, you you have the the legitimization to crack down on it. So it's always the beginning of the end, unfortunately. Like
0: there were good people on both sides at Charlottesville. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) <laughs>
3: um, moving towards of
0: architecture now, mm. do the buildings of 1968 reflect the spirit of the age?
3: You'd have to say, unfortunately, you'd have to equivocate and say yes and no. In 1968, Britain saw the collapse of a relatively new tower block, Ronan Point, which was the beginning of the end of the tower block as the social housing model. It was poorly built, four people were killed when a, when a gas cooker exploded. Up to that moment, the post-war period had been dominated by the attempt to build decent mass housing for the working classes to varying degrees of success. Again, now 50 years on, we see the kind of final wrecking ball taking itself to the products of that era, whether it's the Grenfell Tower or, or whether it's the Smithson's Robin Hood Gardens in East London. So the idealism, the utopianism embodied in the architecture of that era is on its last legs and is being demolished. And you can argue whether it's gentrification, you know, whether actually the building's failed or not. But it's interesting that we're living in the moment now that sees the end of the period of architecture, which came from
1: 68. So, I mean, do you think architects building and designing today have a very different sort of view of what, what they're doing to change the city or to shape the city than they did in the post-war period.
3: With 68 in particular, you need to look at what was happening in the avant-garde and in the universities. It was the um, student bodies that were the, the hotbed of protest. So what interests us here, in a way, is what was bubbling. And that was a very particular and a very peculiar kind of architecture. So there was, as well as the state-sponsored social housing, and the shopping centres, the new towns, the things that we're familiar with, Milton Keynes came out of that era. There was also an atomization of architecture. The students didn't really, the avant-garde students, didn't really want to be co-opted by either the state or capital. So they attempted to find ways of turning on, tuning in and dropping out. And there were architectural manifestations of this. The clearest example was this explosion of bubbles architects designing kushikul was one which was an inflatable bubble that you could have all your your stuff in there was a, a sutaloon which was a kind of hybrid between clothing and uh, and a bubble both of those designed by members of archigram so Kushiko. what's the
0: point of this bubble
3: uh, and the bubble is a way of taking architecture out of the realm of a fixed infrastructure you're completely mobile it's a bit like your laptop on your mobile but a kind of contemporary version that you you set yourself up an environment wherever you are you zip yourself up into this kind of hamster wheel whether you're in the desert it has its own little air conditioning <laughs> how big? so you and could how just sleep in bubbles? this bubble they were the size of i forget what they call these things that you, you have at fun fairs that you uh, you you like a
0: bouncy you, castle
3: not the bouncy and castle absorbing like absorbing they, zorbing. they yes. were zor- they were the um, <laughs> they were the precursors of zorbs actually yeah um, were they popular? No, not at all. No, they <laughs> were completely. Think, um, <laughs> no, they, they were completely unrealistic. What they were, I think, was the beginning of the retreat into uh, individualism. The protests of '68 were very much about society, about transforming society. But actually, as we see, you know, what that generation did was to amplify the cult of the individual and the kind of self-obsessed baby boomer, I suppose you'd call it. And you could see the germs of these already in these strangely idealistic and individualistic projects. And those, I, th- I think you could argue, <clears throat> that bubble is a picture of what, you know, what we've become now with our kind of mobile communications and uh, Google Maps and our kind of complete self-sufficiency in front of a screen. I think actually we are now living in a bubble, except that it's not physically contained. But I think the germs are there in the 60s.
0: A few years ago, I. I talked to lots of uh, Czech people in Prague about, you know, what they missed about communism. And basically, they didn't seem to miss anything apart from this sense of togetherness that, you know, they would have illegal parties in their basement where they'd all go
3: wild and it would be
0: intensely exciting and fun. And now they just, there's no need for that kind of secrecy and they just live on their own.
3: Mm. Well, it certainly amplifies i think that it certainly amplifies the ties where you have to be careful what you say in a broader society i 'm half Hungarian and I spent some time in uh, in living in Budapest and you very much feel now that the atomization has diminished the intimacy and the strength of those ties between individuals because when you didn 't know quite who to trust, when you found someone you absolutely knew you could trust, you became almost inseparable. Mm. And there was also this odd situation where the cities potentially were bugged, you were potentially being watched. So people in Central and Eastern Europe used to have little holiday homes, you know, mostly self-built shacks, really, in in, in kind of quite scrubby sites in the countryside. And they'd retreat there because they knew they weren't being listened
1: to. It's quite dangerous, though, isn't it, to glamorise the kind of togetherness that you get from hardship. Like, I mean, I'd rather not have the hardship and not have the togetherness than to... Have the community, but be living in awful no definitely. Situations. I mean, people are always
0: talking about yeah. the spirit of the Battle of Britain, but none of yeah, us you know, would. But drums are, they know, bombs are dropping of the, on sorry, your head. The spirit of the Blitz. <laughs> Obviously, none of us would wish ourselves back there. How does the architecture of today reflect that individualism?
3: I think the individualism ultimately manifested itself in you know what we might call the age of the, the icon. Well, it's kind of, sort of spectacular architecture, the, the funny-shaped tower. Like the
0: walkie-talkie. Yeah,
3: whether it's the walkie-talkie or the gherkin or um, the shard, you know, all these architects came out of the 68 moment. They were all being educated at that time. So Renzo Piano, the designer of the shard, was also the architect of the uh, the Pompidou. I think the competition win was 68, might have been... Oh, no, it must have been a bit later, 69, because that came out, actually, of the Paris. It was a response to the Paris revolts. It was de Gaulle's idea of uh, unifying the city through culture. In that moment, there was an idea that architecture could be something else, that architecture could be transformable, could be mutable. The Pompidou Centre and a, a British project, which was a little before it, the uh, the Fun Palace by an architect called Cedric Price, together with um, Joan Littlewood, the theatrical impresario, exemplified an idea of an architecture which was not predetermined so it's extremely flexible there was an idea I think in 68 that you couldn't predict the future so how could you build because an architect has to embody certain physical limitations into a building well maybe then you just build a huge framework and the framework can be populated inhabited adapted as needs and that was the idea behind the Centre Pompidou in fact you know security concerns and all the the rigors of building regulation, safety regulations that have followed, have, have, have meant that they've all been actually compartmentalised and closed up. But that idea of a kind of utopian, flexible environment comes from the sixties, and ironically, it was that it was the big banks and the trading floors that, that adapted to the models of the Lloyd's Building in London, and the, and some of the big trading floors in in the states are only the, the benefactors of that that moment.
0: So, what's the difference then between? Something like the cheese grater and Pompidou Center.
3: Well, the difference is in the use. The cheese grater is, a, is an excellent building, but it's a, it's a series of corporate HQs, and uh, you know it's, it's a centre of the insurance industry. That's the difference is in who the client is. The Pompidou Center was always going to be a, a cultural centre, free to access, a town square outside and a town square inside. Effectively, it was designed as a major covered public space is great, use, is not. rather
0: than the actual architecture itself
3: well the architecture i guess you could argue comes from the same impulse it's still the similar kind of high-tech approach but if one is a corporate hq and one is a cultural center then you have to say is that the same architecture or are we just applying a skin to a very different kind of thing
1: so can we find utopian architecture today in new buildings i
3: think probably not I think the moment of utopia has passed, and I suppose that the utopias that were attempted were such radical failures that it's put people off searching for utopia. There is an idea now that utopia is just too idealistic. I think,
0: and too dangerous, um, surely.
3: Yeah, I mean, I went. I went earlier this year to um, Arizona to see one of these utopian communities in the desert by um, Paolo Soleri, who is not. Italian architect who ended up in working for Frank Lloyd Wright and then set up this ideal community and it's a it's a very strange place indeed it's a kind of ex hippie commune, quite ambitious the architecture is is absolutely wonderful, but you know, now there were all kinds of problems coming out about abuse within the community and uh kind of little factionalism and, um, and the tensions that, that always existed there. And the idea is still there that they're going to still be carried on, that they, they're going to somehow expand into the cities they were always envisaged to be. But it's delusional. Well, on that happy <laughs> note. <laughs> on that happy note.
1: <laughs> Eddie, thank you
0: very much for coming on the podcast.
3: Absolute pleasure.
1: So, Al, tell me about Fern Brady.
0: Fern Brady is a brilliant young Scottish comedian. She's very confessional, she's completely unsparing of herself and everyone else. She's sort of quirky and dark. I heard her on the news quiz on Radio 4, and she's very, very funny. She talks about, you know how she was a stripper. Um, when she was at Edinburgh University. Uh, she would talk about her appearance. She has a dark, misanthropic edge, and she's wonderful.
1: Is a dark misanthropic edge something you can relate to, Al? <laughs> not at all. <laughs> she, I mean, is she super famous? No, she's
0: not incredibly famous. I think she will be. But, you know, I think we've caught her at a point where she's about to become a household name. Here she is now. Fern, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Which is more exposing? stand up or stripping
2: <laughs> Definitely stand up because uh when you're a when you're a stripper your work uniform is identical to all your colleagues but when you're um uh a stand up you're well I do material that's really personal to me so when people don't like it they're like they hate me for me <laughs> If people dislike you as a stripper, they just hate you for whatever a stripper or women represent.
0: Do you mind when audiences don't like you?
2: Yeah, of course I mind.
0: <laughs> Can you feel it?
2: Yeah. Um. Only recently I've stopped minding it as much and stopped trying to make an audience like me if they don't like me. So I was in Newcastle there at the weekend, which I find difficult to gig there. I feel like I have a whole other... F- a reference to I just feel like I don't do well there but I've sort of tried to accept that
0: specifically Newcastle
2: yeah like I shouldn't say one town because then if I do a go tour there. there but for example what I used to do when things were going badly is try and start frantically trying to get them to like me so this time last year I did a gig in Hornchurch in Essex they were animals meowing at me to heckle me They booed me off stage for four minutes. Or it took me four minutes to leave the stage. (laughs) It was like another way of saying it. And they were booing. Yeah, yeah, it was terrible. Like an old man stood up and offered to go on. And I was like, yeah, I think an old Essex man would do better than a Scottish woman here. It (laughs) it was unreal. And after that, I was like, I'm not going to try and get people on my side. So I had another gig like that this year.
0: Whereabouts so we can just cross uh, off all the bad places.
2: Well, it was near Leicester, but I really like Leicester. It was a village in Leicester. I was on with a comic called Bilal Zafar, and all the comics on the lineup can attest that this was a very strange gig. Basically, I went on stage, and these people in the front row had been heckling the MC from the start. And then this woman went, "No, shut up, guys!" And she went, "I love you to me." Well, a few minutes later, the same woman that said she loved me was getting ready to embed her glass in my face. I've had enough people try and fight me on stage that I know when it's coming, and I was just due to film. My most recent Edinburgh show was getting filmed for the BBC, so I was like, "I'm not having this face <laughs> glassed <laughs> for the sake of a hundred quid gig in Leicester." So I just walked off. And I was going to ask
0: you what. What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? But you, uh, so you black them out after a while. So you've been physically attacked on stage?
2: And uh, no, I've had a lot of near escapes. And I've had but so why? many. Why what have
0: you said to provoke this?
2: A lot of the time it's if people someone put it to me this way, you would never go and watch a band and then not listen to their music before you went to hear them, then go and be like this isn't the kind of music I want to hear and start getting angry with them. But with comedy, this happens all the time because they think, well, a general night of comedy, that's going to be great. And then they see me and I'm really not for everyone and they get angry.
0: Is it lonely being a comedian?
2: Yes. (laughs) But at the same time, I couldn't bear working with other people when I had a normal job.
0: So why would anyone put themselves through it? You were going to be a journalist, you said.
2: I've noticed, although it's changing now because we've got Catherine Ryan and Sarah Pascoe on TV a lot, there's a lot more women going into it. But I have noticed a lot of funny women tended to go into journalism rather than comedy when they might have been great comedians like um, Caitlin Moran and Hadley Freeman's really funny and Victoria Corrin, like... They all, I think they might have been in stand-up yeah. if they'd been men or women in another time. I went into journalism because I'm a narcissist and then I gradually realised that...
0: It's the only reason to go into
2: journalism. Well, I think a lot of columnists are narcissists yeah. and they have a lot of the same unpleasant personality traits as comedians, but what bothers me is that... Such as what? Just wanting to have the last word and everything. Like, I really have more time for comedians than... Journalists now. I ended up realising I didn't want to be a journalist because I like writing but I didn't want to do death knocks (laughs) Uh, and that was what I was getting trained up to do because for someone from my background that's the only way in really as you train up as a news reporter
0: Your background being Bathgate um,
2: (laughs) Yeah that's great in your accent yeah like well the journalism so heavily skewed towards people that went to private school. Mm. I was just reading the Sunday Times there and there was a, there's a shite columnist and it's Richard Curtis and Emma Freud's door straight in with their own column. It disgusts me, to be quite honest with you. But Not just her, but yeah. loads of them.
0: But it's true of PAL shows as well, isn't it?
2: Yeah, man. Like I was, I'm going to meet him after this, actually. I was gigging with Phil Wang in Australia and we were talking about benefiting from well, like, there's a big thing just now with diversity and TV commissioning. Now I benefit from this because I'm a, a woman, and I said to him, "Well, in terms of ethnic minorities getting on, what tends to happen is the posh, the poshest ethnic minorities get on first because I feel commissioners want to see the closest thing to a middle class white person on." And Phil went like her. I went, you? Yeah, like, you? <laughs> and and we were sitting in a car full of comedians, and I said, everyone in this car has been a private school, except for me. He was like, really? And I was like, yeah, Abington, Black Rock College. <laughs> I was, like, pointing out yeah. all the schools they went to.
0: Would so, you describe yourself as politically engaged?
2: Yeah, I got confused because I kept I kept getting put on um, political panel shows. like I, I didn't know why, and then... Because my boyfriend works in politics and he's what I would think of as someone who knows stuff about politics. Right. Whereas I just sort of make confident declarative statements.
0: You were on the news quiz?
2: Yeah, like I do the things yeah. like that. But I wouldn't, there's like real political comedians like um, Andy Zaltzman and mm-hmm. Matt Ford. They'd be the type who'd be really so interested in. Why, why aren't you in. real? Well, I'm political, but I'm not interested in party politics and I don't.
0: Are you interested in me too?
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pretty obsessed with it. So I'm interested in things like that and gay rights, but in terms of following what's going on in Westminster, I'm not. I find that hard to be interested in.
0: Are you pleased with how the Me Too movement is going?
2: I am, but I keep worrying it's all just temporary. All the guys that are paying attention to the Me Too thing are the ones that were already pretty sound to begin with. Although I have noticed it's definitely entered people's consciousness. Like my dad's pretty basic and he phoned me up going on about Emma Thompson's interview about sexual harassment. And I've noticed like guys that are sexist will preface saying a sexist thing with, oh, I don't I don't know if this is misogynistic. <laughs> People weren't even using the word misogyny a few years back yeah. as frequently as they are now. That's a good thing. Yeah, but I still have guys. All the male comedians that I don't mind hugging at gigs don't hug me anymore. Like at the weekend there, I had an open spot. Open spot means a new comedian. Right. Kept trying to hug me before and after he went on stage. And I was like, what are you doing? Sometimes I go, look, we're living in a post Weinstein era. Have you missed out on this? <laughs> yes.
0: Where does your comedy come from?
2: Just uh, wretchedness and misery.
0: (laughs) Misanthropy is a theme in some of your gigs, no?
2: Yeah, well, I don't take antidepressants since doing comedy because if I can get to the right level of depression, then it's really good for um, my stand-up. But that's (laughs) quite dangerous, trying to find the balance.
0: I was going to ask, you know, does it help to be angry and paranoid? Many comedians do seem to be angry, and that might be just a cliché.
2: No, even, even comedy that you think is nice on stage comes from bad feelings. Talk well, me through how the <clears> um,
0: getting to a certain level of depression gets you to your funniest.
2: Well, because if you're depressed, you don't care what people think as much. You have a much higher tolerance for embarrassment because you feel dead inside. A lot of the best gigs I've had have been where... I'm either depressed or I'm very tired from working a lot. Like, when I was new, I cared too much about how well the gig went. And I remember an older comedian was like, you just need to not give a shit. You have to not give a shit. And that's good advice, but you can only it can only happen from gigging to the point of exhaustion. You have to get to the point where comedy is just, like, a normal job. So, for example, when I was in Melbourne we all did this gala at the Sydney Opera House, but it came at the end of a month of us working every day. So I just was like, I just can't, I can't be bothered with this. So I went on and did a good gig, but I felt nothing. And that's good for comedy.
0: (laughs) How depressed are you right now?
2: I'm quite good at the moment because I've just had a month off.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But you would be bad if you were going to do a gig now.
2: No, I'm doing a gig tonight and I I tell you what I enjoy now is um, trying out new material and having it go well. When you start comedy, just going on stage makes you feel really excited and you feel physically nervous. Like I used to be so excited when I started comedy that I couldn't sleep after when I got home from the gig. But now... It almost is like taking cocaine where you have to... They've said that comedians get like a dopamine rush mm-hmm. from doing it, but it feels like you have to go further and further and play to bigger audiences or do you new You become addicted. Material. Yeah, it is addictive. Is it
0: addicted, addiction to the audience response?
2: Yeah, it's definitely... Like a lot of comedians I've heard get grumpy when they're off for a bit, and I get that as well. You don't because know why. you're you? coming down. Yeah, because you have to go and do another gig.
0: So if you've had a bad day, it doesn't matter. You'll, you'll be that a, helps. That'll be a good thing.
2: Yeah. So I used to have a normal job for the first three years of doing this. Which was what? Oh, loads of things. So um, I moved to Manchester when I dropped out of journalism school. First, I worked in a sex shop in Stockport with another comedian. Um, <laughs> that was really good.
0: Good for material.
2: I haven't done any material on it, because it was just too ludicrous. Um, Then I got a job at ITV doing the clearance for music, which is just a really terrible admin job. And I hated my colleagues. It was just great for comedy having to... I felt like I was having to constantly pretend to be this sweet, polite woman all day. And it was so unnatural that it meant when you did gigs at night, it was like a really good release. It was such a good time for comedy.
0: Were you a funny child?
2: Uh, yeah, but also everyone thought I was weird. <laughs>
0: <laughs> weird in what way?
2: I liked to come out with things to um, get a rise out of people.
0: It's not the definition of stand up.
2: I remember making my parents laugh because I had a job in Boots when I was 15 or 16 and I hated all the women that I worked with and I used to come home and basically do stand up to my parents insulting all my colleagues and talking about getting bullied. I was like a really tragically ugly child, like basically all go on my Instagram (laughs) because I'll just just put up some pictures from it. So um, Joan Rivers said like no female comedian was a pretty child because it means you, you have to like work hard to get people's approval in other ways whereas if you're a pretty child... You could just you sit just, there looking pretty. Yeah, yeah, and then you don't have a personality. I had, like, big thick glasses when I was a kid and a sort of bowl cut. I used to do martial arts. This was so awful. And um, I hated everyone in the martial arts class as well. Taekwondo, that was it. And my parents found that I'd drawn a cartoon series of all, all the people that I hated in this class and just like drawings of me with my big glasses. So I was I was really weird. I was always making things like that.
0: You studied Arabic and Islamic history at Edinburgh University.
2: Yeah, but so. I quit for English literature and someone's put on my Wikipedia page that I've got a degree in Arabic and I haven't.
0: Yeah, that's where I got my information
2: from. But yeah, I, I don't know how to change. If you know how to edit a Wikipedia, can you change it? Because I don't know how. Oh, I
0: don't know. It's a bit of a leap, isn't it? Arabic. From Arabic and Islamic history to... English. Stress, ...stripping and stand-up.
2: Well, I was doing stripping at uni. I wasn't yeah. aspiring to be a stripper. <laughs> okay.
0: But it's still a leap into stand-up. No? Were your parents pleased when you said... No.
2: About stand-up? Yeah. No, they were really annoyed because I was the first in the family to go to university and I'd oh, I always, like, got good grades and stuff. Then the journalism thing, they were so pleased. And then when I started doing comedy... It's a really hard sell to your parents because you don't get paid anything when you start off.
0: Yeah, so did you think, okay, I'm going to give it a certain amount of time?
2: Yeah, and I actually got to the, sounds like such a bullshit fairy tale thing, but I got to the point where I was going to quit. I went to York and got a job working for the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. I did this like, graduate job because I was like, I have a degree, I have to stop mucking about yeah. with stand-up. And then I met my boyfriend there at least because I I can't bear the thought of going out with another comedian. And um, lost a job there and then while I was depressed and on the dole I started writing Guardian stuff and then off the back of that got on Stuart Lee's TV show and got an agent and moved to London. Now my dad's really proud of me doing it but for years he was like, why don't you just get a proper job and... When I first did the Edinburgh Festival, I, I had to do um I did a medical trial to pay for it. Um, <laughs> a lot of comedians wow. get oh. their fringe paid for by their parents, yeah. you know. So I did this thing called Flu Camp, where you get locked in a in this medical ward for ten days and get the flu put up your nose, and that paid for my first Edinburgh. How,
0: how was how was the flu?
2: It was fine. It was it was worth it, and but my dad was like because he wasn't going to pay for it. I've just got my head around you not making money from this and now you're telling me people pay to go to the Edinburgh Festival. But now I tell him what I'm getting paid for stuff and he's like, never stop working, take every job.
0: So for any stand-up, is it possible to feel like you've
2: made it? No, I just realised that recently.
0: That it's just, there's always there's always a bigger gig that you should be aiming for
2: Yeah, like it's really, when you realise that, it's terrible. Like, so I, because my boyfriend used to say that I would shout over and over again the same three sentences. I would say, let's get married, nothing is happening in my career, and I want a dog. And he said, now that's changed to just saying too much is happening in my career. (laughs) But
0: you still want a dog?
2: Yeah, but I can't because I'm away all the time working.
0: Do you find that a lot of your comedy is very personal, and that you know you're pouring yourself out on stage night after night? It must be emotionally very draining. No? Yeah. <laughs> and potentially unhealthy.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. That's why I, I had to have time off there because so it was just after Melbourne.
0: Doing the you were a hustle
2: Yeah, because <laughs> I'd been doing the same show since Edinburgh.
0: But when you say you're and doing the same show, it. it must change every night. I started to night.
2: change it. Yeah, it was totally different by the end.
0: Can it accommodate hecklers?
2: No. Well, not a storytelling Edinburgh show. Now I don't mind hecklers. Women generally don't get heckled because it's a power thing. People heckle women by wolf whistling. It's never a good thing when they That's do not that. a
0: good thing. That can't be that can't be no, no, anywhere funny. That.
2: No, it's just uh saying I want to shag you instead of I want to listen to you. It's uh way of insulting us. So I don't mind hecklers. But it's tricky dealing with them in a storytelling show where you've got to be in and out the venue within an hour. In some gigs, I would welcome hecklers rather than silence. um,
0: You do TV, radio, stand-up? Do you have a preference?
2: My favourite thing is to do five minutes of stand-up on TV because then it's like a normal gig, the thing that I do all the time. So it's good doing it on TV because you're just getting to be yourself. I never thought I would like doing topical panel shows because I do one in Scotland that's similar to the news quiz and then the news quiz, I never thought they would put someone like yeah, you me were, on you it. You were
0: quite disparaging about Radio 4 panel shows a couple of years ago. Hey,
2: wow. how many of my shows have you seen?
0: <laughs> Shit. Um, no, I think I read this in one of your columns.
2: Oh, yeah. And yet,
0: and yet there you were.
2: Parlor Games, I called it. <laughs> yeah, it.
0: you said Parlor Games, yeah.
2: I mean, yeah, like it's...
0: Too many white men.
2: Oh, not because there's too many white men. Miles job is sound. I love extreme posh people. They're great. No, it's nothing to do with the panel. It's the, like... Now, I do want to do the news quiz again, <laughs> if any of you are listening. There's a bit at the end of the news quiz where you have to read out Uh, Jill from Tunbridge Wells said this week and then you say some stupid innuendo and I think it's one of the worst things about English humour is the love of innuendo and saying stuff about shagging but not actually saying it. I really dislike it and I'll tell you something because I've only just started travelling to other countries for comedy and I had a thing out in America I sort of realised oh I just don't fit into British comedy because people love innuendo and puns, and they always say that I'm brutally honest or forthright, but I'm not doing that intentionally. I'm ju- thats just how I talk.
0: Phone Brady Thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me, Alistair. Oh, it's not Alistair, it's Al. It's <laughs> Sorry. It <Alistair. laughs> said that in the email. <laughs> Fern Brady is at the
1: Albany in London on the 29th of June as well as Latitude Festival and Cornbury and she's also at the Edinburgh Festival supporting Frankie Boyle
0: Let us know what you think of the podcast We'd love to hear from you facebook.com slash everythingelsepodcast or at ft.com.
1: And if you like what you hear, please, please do leave us a rating or review at Apple Podcasts.
0: Everything else is produced by Chica Airs. We've been Grizz and Al, and our music is by Fatten.